0: Uh, Join me, if you would, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, I recall as uh, little boys, my younger brother and I were sitting, I think, on our bedroom floor with our money. Perhaps we had our piggy banks out or something like that. And I put before my brother what personally I thought was quite the remarkable offer. I said something like this, hey, Matt. Do you see my big, shiny nickel? Look how big it is. In fact, why don't you hold it and feel how heavy it is? And after doing that, I said, you know, I'll trade you my nickel for that dirty little dime over there. And he made the deal. Of course, I robbed him blind. But the assumption was that the big coin had more worth. It was bigger. It was heavier. And that assumption was wrong. We might say that 1 Corinthians 14 sets before us uh, two coins. You've got the gift of tongues and you've got the gift of prophesying. And I would argue that neither one of those is operative in the church today, but they certainly were then. And so throughout the chapter, Paul compares and he contrasts these two together to teach us the value of the gifts. What is really, really valuable? And what are the gifts for? The larger coin, the gift of tongues, is big and it's shiny and it would appear to have uh, the greater value. And it's actually, though, the smaller coin, the gift of prophesying, that is much, much more profitable to the entire body. And yet our tendency when it comes to the gifts, whether, you know, we could be talking about tongues and prophecy or any of the other gifts. Our tendency when it comes to the gifts is to trade a small coin for a larger one. Why? Why? Well, I think that's probably because we tend to assess gifts in in ways like this. We tend to assess value in the gifts by uh, what is it that gives me a spiritual high personally? What's going to allow me to have almost a a sense of spiritual euphoria? And maybe even legitimately, uh, what's going to truly edify me? Or perhaps what might convey to other people that I'm spiritual? Or what is it that that when I exercise it causes me to feel affirmed or be affirmed and feel satisfied? What makes me feel like I'm doing something significant for Jesus? The value of the spiritual gifts is actually what they bring to the body, the whole church, not just you. You. And when we assess the value of spiritual gifts wrongly, we tend to look uh, more like little children at play than Christians who have gathered for worship. And what I'm trying to get at is this. People easily make corporate worship and the use of their particular gifts, whatever they may be, about themselves. The use of our gifts in worship is all too easily something that becomes kind of privatized and internalized. And personalized, the focus and purpose of the gifts becomes inward instead of something outward, towards each other. And when that happens, a dime gets traded for a nickel every single time. God spent the last two chapters teaching us about the spiritual gifts and the need for love to be the thing that drives and governs our use of all of them. In the Corinthians case, it would seem that they were particularly taken with the gift of tongues. And may have even elevated it perhaps above all the gifts in some way, shape, or form. And without minimizing tongues, I think we want to be clear here in chapter 14, Paul's not degrading tongues. He's not trying to put them down in the basement somewhere, actually. Uh, Without minimizing tongues, God taught that there was a gift, though, that would go much, much, much further in building up the body there in Corinth. And that's the goal in Corinth, and here, and in every church around the world. God wants you to strive to excel in building up the church. And that's what this chapter is about. We're going to cover a huge chunk of text here today. 1 Corinthians 14, 1 to 25. I'm going to read this section and would ask you to follow along with me. Pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough. But the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Thus tongues are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is a sign, not for unbelievers, but for believers. If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues, and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you are out of your minds? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Before working our way through this text, I think it'd be helpful to take a moment and try to accurately identify the two gifts that Paul is talking about tongues and prophecy, uh, first, tongues, there are a few common views on what the gift of tongues in First Corinthians uh, twelve to 14 is. Uh, some understand it to be a heavenly spiritual language. You may recall uh, last week in First Corinthians chapter 13, Paul said, "If I speak in the tongues of men or of what angels." And some looking at that verse would understand tongues to be some kind of, of heavenly language, angelic language, the language of heaven. Others would understand it to be ecstatic language, language that is not intelligible. It would consist of strange sounds and different things. Uh, When I was in university, I lived in the men's dormitories. And one day as I was sitting in my room studying or talking with a friend or something like that, I heard a loud noise coming uh, from down the hall. And I couldn't make out what it was. Um, So I walked down the hall to see what it was and realized the closer that I got that it was another student Um, quote-unquote speaking in tongues and it was this ecstatic type of speech and uh, over the next few weeks he would do it several times and eventually I remember just kind of talking to him asking him about it because I was curious but what he was doing was was this type of ecstatic speech with strange sounds it was not a known intelligible language by any means Um, And and that type of thing, by the way, throughout history has been practiced by many different religions, uh, something akin to this. But it's actually not what the New Testament portrays tongues to be. The third option is that tongues is an actual foreign language or languages never before learned by the tongue speaker. And this third view makes the most sense. Why? Because that's the pattern that we see beginning in the book of Acts. The occurrences in Acts indicate that tongues are known languages or dialects never before learned by the speaker. And there's no compelling reason to think that by the time that we get to 1 Corinthians 12 to 14, that tongues are somehow different in this text than they were in the book of Acts. In fact, uh, the text that I just read, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, verses 10 to 11 in particular, specifically mention actual foreign languages. So I think that that is the best, most biblical understanding is that tongues are actually real foreign languages. The second gift that's mentioned in this passage is prophecy. Um, What is prophecy? Well, the, the, the Bible speaks about it again and again and again to really define it. It's a huge study. But at a really high level, we might say that the distinctive mark of the prophetic office in Scripture is is sharing and communicating direct revelation from God. That's what the prophets did in the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And that would also appear to be what the gift of prophecy involved, receiving direct revelation from God and, and sharing that. However, that's the narrow sense of the idea. Scripture also uses prophecy as a very, very broad, um, umbrella-like term for almost any kind of speech that's for the Lord. And I think that's helpful when we think about applying this chapter, especially if we come to it uh, with the understanding that the gift of prophecy has ceased all right, let's start working through this text. And uh, this week and next, we're going to look at two keys to, uh, to edifying, or we might say constructive worship. If we want to gather here week after week and have worship that, that is a type of worship that builds up the people of God, what is key and central to that? And we'll just look at one of the two today, and it is intelligibility. Intelligible worship builds up the body. If worship isn't, isn't intelligible, And you can't understand it. How does that benefit the people who have gathered for worship? Well, it doesn't. Paul is going to argue. Intelligible worship benefits believers. That's why Paul is arguing in this passage that it's prophecy that that, that is more profitable for the body than tongues when God's people gather together. Regarding intelligibility, verses 1 to 19 describe a few of the things that God wants when his people gather for corporate worship. We gather like this, and I may have things that I want here this morning, and you may have things that you want here this morning. What is it that God wants? When we gather together. And I want to just give you four of God's desires for corporate worship. First, God wants all of his people to be addressed or spoken to. Look at verses one to three again. Pursue love. And what we're going to find in the unfolding of this chapter, if you're going to do that, then you need to insist that worship be intelligible. Pursue love and earnestly desire spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to who? people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. At verse two, Paul argues that the tongues speaker is not addressing people. Who's he addressing? According to verse two, he's addressing God. And what do we call it when a person addresses God? Well, that's prayer, right? The tongue speaker is praying and he's uttering mysteries in the spirit of God. Okay, this doesn't sound like a negative thing. There's something positive going on here. What's interesting, though, is that verses 13 to 15, which we'll get to in a little bit, give the impression that the tongue speaker doesn't actually know what he's saying. His mind is unfruitful. There's something happening and it's spiritual and it's positive and it's good, but his mind isn't engaged in that. And we might say he's even having an authentic, personal, positive worship experience. How so? Well, even though he might not understand exactly what it is that he's praying, he's aware in some way, shape or form that he's exercising some supernatural endowment. Even though he doesn't personally understand. And it's great. It would have moved his affections. But what's God's concern? God's concern is that the tongue speaker is addressing God, not men. And no one understands. And I think one of the points would be that corporate worship is not a private experience. God wants all of his people to be spoken to when the church gathers for worship. Look at verse 3 as he gives a contrast here. On the other hand, okay, when when, uh, tongues are not being spoken in, on the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to who? Not to God, but to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. God wants all of his people to be addressed in worship for their upbuilding and for their encouragement, and for their consolation. You catch God's heart there? That that's his heart for his people when they gather? Have you ever felt like a third wheel in a conversation? Um, that could be really awkward sometimes. Maybe you're at work, and it's break time or whatever, and a couple of your coworkers are talking, and you think you'll just kind of walk up and join the conversation and there you are standing and yet their conversation just kind of continues and you're standing there almost as if you don't exist. (laughs) That's a little awkward. Or maybe a third wheel, you know, on some kind of date, maybe growing up, your sister needs a chaperone and she's like, hey, can you come with me on my date with my boyfriend? And you're like, "Um, no, thanks. (laughs) I don't really have any desire to be there for that. I don't really want to be a third wheel on your guys' relationship. That just doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Well, worship's not meant to be that way either. God wants all of His people to be spoken to and addressed in worship. Worship is not some kind of, of spectator sport where you sit there and look in on something going on. The second desire of God for corporate worship when His people gather God wants all of his people not just you to be edified or built up look at verses 4 and 5 the one who speaks in tongue in a tongue builds up himself but the one who prophesies builds up the church now i want you all to speak in tongues but even more to prophesy the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up That that phrase of being built up and edified just repeats and repeats and repeats in this chapter. When someone speaks in tongues, when the church gathers, the only person that's built up, the only person that's edified in the entire body is that person. No one else has a clue what's being said unless there's someone there to interpret. That's why Paul commends prophecy because people can't, can't understand tongues. And instead of one person or a select group of people being built up and edified, prophecy, it builds up the body. It's building up the church. When it comes to our gatherings for worship, God wants all of his people, not just you, to be edified. This isn't about your own little experience with God and you having a really great Sunday personally. He wants all of his people, not just you, to be edified, built up, comforted, encouraged. When you exercise or think about exercising your spiritual gift, I think the question would be, who are you aiming to benefit? Who are you aiming to help? You or someone else? We so quickly make our gifts about, well, this is uh, this just makes me feel good. And that was great. Why did you do whatever gift? What was your objective? Was it? personal and self-fulfillment or was it others focused does your gift help others that's the important thing and I think just a fair question for for you is this are you pursuing opportunities to love the rest of us and build the rest of us up that's what God wants of all of his people he wants us to come and go how can I how can I love on the rest of these people How can I pursue love and help strengthen and encourage the people around me? This this gathering is not about me. A third desire of God for corporate worship. God wants all of his people to understand. Look at verses six to eight. Now, brothers, if I come to you speaking in tongues, how will I benefit you? Unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or teaching. If even lifeless instruments such as the flute or the harp do not give distinct notes, how will anyone know what is played? And if the bugle gives an indistinct sound, who will get ready for battle? Paul offers here a couple of illustrations to demonstrate his point. And he starts with the illustration just of instruments, instruments that we would be familiar with. Uh, you can pick up a string or a wind instrument and you can start making noise with it, right? Anyone here in this room could do that. Anyone can pick up a trombone and honk on it, right? Like some of you were in middle school and high school band and you, ha- you experienced that. Anybody can honk on a trombone and make some noise or a guitar, but that doesn't mean that what was made was music. Music has things like uh, timing and rhythm and dynamics. It gets louder and it gets soft, softer. Uh, it has progression. It goes somewhere. It communicates something and it actually takes you somewhere. Uh, next, Paul mentions the war horn. If the guy on the bugle, you know, that guy's actually, he's pretty important, particularly in ancient battle. If he doesn't give a clear, distinct message through the war horn, through the trumpet, the troops don't know what to do. They don't know if they should get all their gear together and pack up and get ready for battle. They don't know if they should uh, forward march and advance or if they should retreat and run. And you know, if you you get those things wrong, you know, you should retreat and instead you advance. You go out there and you get slaughtered. It could be quite detrimental. You could end up dead in the end. Paul uses those two illustrations to describe worship that's unintelligible. Look at how he connects the dots in verses 9 to 12. He says, so with yourselves. I'm applying those illustrations to you. If with your tongue you utter speech that is not intelligible, how will anyone know what is said? For you will be speaking into the air. There are doubtless many languages in the world and none is without meaning. I mean, you could be speaking a real language and it has meaning. What you're saying has meaning. But if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. So with yourselves. Since you are eager for manifestations of the Spirit, strive to excel in building up the church. And he's saying... Tongues and prophecy, tongues, they're not going to do it if nobody understands. That doesn't help build the church up. Unintelligible worship and ministry don't build up the church. Some of you uh, come from cultural or religious backgrounds um, where church worship services were held in a language that you didn't understand. I mean, you've like been there, done that, got the T-shirt. And perhaps you went to church services for years that were done in Latin. Or maybe they were done in high German or, or some dialect that just wasn't your, the tongue that you spoke every day in your home. And So some of you have had that experience of not understanding a word that was said. And maybe that unknown language gave the service and the worship gathering uh, an aura of, of, of real spirituality. Or maybe it, it, it made it feel deep and significant. But did it benefit you? Were you any better off by being there for those two hours that day? Probably not. And God never intended it to be that way. I think this is also sometimes the case with families who have immigrated from one country to another. And mom and dad, their, their first language is, is uh, their native tongue from wherever they em- immigrated from. But by the time they immigrated, the kids, uh, they're, they're really their first language was the country that they, they immigrated to. And you've got these families in worship where mom and dad desperately wanted to be in their native tongue, and yet the kids don't understand that very well. But mom and dad don't understand the new language very well. And, and you've got people gathered for worship and some people understand, some don't. Well, if you don't understand, it doesn't help. God wants his people to understand. And I, I think this comes, manifests itself in so many ways. A, a preacher could stand up and preach in such a way that everybody goes, wow. I mean, I can sure tell that he has a lot of degrees, and he sure sounds really smart. But if it's straight over everyone's head, and he's just waxing eloquently, and people are like, wow, he's so smart. I have no idea what he's talking about. And they don't understand what's the value. The preacher may have been built up. Maybe people online were able to follow and thought it was great. His sermon may have been a monument to his knowledge, but the church wasn't built up. Who cares? Well, you think even about the songs that we sing. We intentionally try to choose songs that you can follow. And you can go, I, I, I know what those words are saying. God wants all of his people to understand. and the fourth desire of God for corporate worship, God wants all these his people to participate in worship in the fullness of their personhood. To be a person, what does that mean? It means to have mind and will and emotion. Those are the three elements that typically come up when we try to define what a person is. God wants all of his people to participate in worship like we've gathered here together today to do in the fullness of their personhood, mind, will, and emotion. All of those. Again, worship is not some kind of spectator sport. All of God's people should be fully active and engaged in it. How so? Well, corporate worship should involve our minds. Look at verses 13 to 19, and as I read through these verses, just note how many times Paul specifically mentions the mind. Verse 13, Therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray for the power to interpret. Here's the explanation why that prayer should be made. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. I can pray in a tongue, a real known language. It has meaning, but I don't even know what I'm saying. My mind is unfruitful. What am I to do? He says, I will pray with my spirit. I will do that. But I will pray with my mind also. I will sing praise with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough. But the other person is not being built up. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. Nevertheless, in church, I would rather speak five words with my mind in order to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Paul just gave directives for tongue speakers in church. And he said, you know what? You need to pray that you can personally interpret what what it is that you're speaking. Or somebody else needs to do that. But it's essential. If someone's going to speak in tongues, there must be an interpreter. Why? Well, he keeps going back to the mind. Worship is more than some kind of emotional experience or emotional high, it involves our minds. In verse 14, Paul describes himself as a tongue speaker who could be speaking in tongues and yet have an unfruitful mind. He could pray in tongues and not know what he was saying, which would mean that the others gathered for worship, they don't know either. He doesn't know. They don't know. Corporate worship involves our minds. And at the end of the paragraph, Paul says, in church, in the corporate setting like this, when we've all gathered together, I would rather speak just five words with my mind that I understand and that people understand than 10,000 words in a tongue. And it all goes back to the the importance of intelligibility. He's not bashing tongues like they're evil. He's arguing for intelligibility in order that the church would be built up. Just on a personal level, As we gather for worship, are you striving to engage your mind in worship? Are you mentally checked in here today and each week as you come? Or is your mind somewhere else? It's easy for things like texts and emails to distract us or other things to be on our minds. And yet God wants us all to gather and we engage our minds as we sing. What are those words I'm singing about? As someone... Up here, praise. What's being prayed and, and and what's being said? And as the word of God is preached, is your mind engaged? Or are you checked out in some other world? Corporate worship should involve our minds. And also corporate worship should involve our wills. Look at verses 16 and 17. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, so you're truly giving thanks to God in some tongue, you don't understand it, people don't understand it. Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to your thanksgiving when he does not know what you are saying? For you may be giving thanks well enough. Nobody's questioning that. But the other person is not being built up. The outsider there in verse 16 that's referenced is probably an outsider, not in the sense that um, he's not a Christian or that he's not part of the body, but in the sense that he's an outsider to the gift. He, he doesn't understand. He's a believer who doesn't have the gift to interpret what's being said in tongues, and, and therefore he, he, he's at an arm's length. So the tongue speaker is praying and prays to God. There, there's no question that that is real and authentic and genuine, but people don't understand what he's saying, which means that they can't personally say, Amen. In response to the praise that's being offered to God. Amen means something like it is true. And, and when a person would say that audibly or in their soul, that they're, they're confirming with the person that's that's praising God, this is true. Our God is like that. Yes, praise be to God. Amen. The people can't respond, though, in this case with tongues, the, the people can't do that. They can't respond to the praying and the praise and, and the preaching, the message. that they, they can't engage their wills like that. God desires worship to be responsive. There's something that we're supposed to do. When someone prays, it's God's desire that you pray with them. And when someone uh, offers praise to God, it's God's desire that you do that with them. And when someone preaches, it's God's desire that your mind is engaged and you listen and you respond. That is worship. And it should involve our wills. And do you know what else? Corporate worship should involve our emotions. And we might even say our affections. I think that conservatives like us are often extremely, extremely wary of many forms of emotional expression in worship. Oh, we've got to be careful. <laughs> we, we wouldn't want any of that. And perhaps that's reactionary to the many abuses of that sort of thing within Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. Here's the thing, though. <clears throat> worship and Stoicism, those two things are, are, are mutually exclusive. They don't go together they're they're opposites if you can come to worship the true and living and saving god of the universe and your lord and savior and that part of you your affections and your emotions are like a stone hard as rock then there is something wrong with you corporate worship is yes it's absolutely More than an emotional experience. But it is not less. Says who? God. There's an important little word in verse 15. And it's the word also. And note what Paul uses that little word to communicate in verse 15. He says, what am I to do? Okay, if if speaking in tongues doesn't build anybody up because I don't understand it and they don't understand and My mind's unfruitful and so is theirs. What am I to do? He goes, I will pray with my spirit. That's what was going on when he was just speaking in tongues. It was his spirit and the spirit of God working in him. It, it, was, it was a, a wonderful uh, experience and, and the affections would have been moved. I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind. Also, it's not one or the other. It's not like, well, I'm going to, my spirit doesn't matter. I'm just going to do this with my mind here. It's going to be really calculated and mental. No, I will pray with my spirit, but I will pray with my mind also. And I will sing with my spirit, but I will sing with my mind also. Man's spirit needs to be engaged in worship. Corporate worship is not some kind of mental exercise. Nor is it a series of uh, heartless choices and responses to whatever's going on. Corporate worship involves our minds, our wills, and our emotions, and our affections. Sure, emotionalism, that's a problem. Emotion for emotion's sake, yeah, not good. But true emotion and affection, that is good. And if we can worship God without it, there's something wrong with us. Are you scared of emotions and affections and worship or any kind of expression of that in worship? The Bible tells us that David danced before the Lord and worship. Does that, I'm just curious, does that fit anywhere in your theology? Or do you think that worship must be rigid, stiff, and lifeless? God wants all of his people to participate in worship in the fullness of their personhood, mind, will, and emotion. We don't come to worship as outsiders uh, sitting on the bench to watch someone else have a personal, private God moment. We come to participate. And is that what you come to do when God's people gather? Even if you're sitting there like you are right now and you're maybe just silently sitting there. You can still be participating. Intelligible worship benefits believers. And then in verse 20 to 25, intelligible worship benefits not just believers, but unbelievers. Look at verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking, be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. God wants us to think maturely about tongues, and in order to do that, God quotes from Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11 and verse 21. Now look at that verse, verse 21. He says, in the law it is written, by people of strange tongues and by the lips of foreigners will I speak to this people, and even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Uh, That statement was originally penned to Israel, unbelieving Israel. Israel wouldn't listen to God's message. He just kept coming to them with the prophets, with with messages that they were off course. And they wouldn't listen, they wouldn't repent. And so he told them that one day his message would come to them in foreign tongues and they still wouldn't listen. Well, it wouldn't be long in Israel's history before foreigners speaking in foreign tongues, namely the Assyrians and then the Babylonians, came and they overtook Israel. And their languages heard in the ears of unbelieving Israel were a sign of God's judgment on his unbelieving people. But Isaiah 28.11 seems to have been fulfilled not just there in that historical context back in ancient Israel's life. But it seems to have as well to have been further fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. When Jewish people stood up and they spoke in Gentile tongues by the spirit of god it was a sign yet again to unbelieving israel look at verse 22 thus tongues are a sign not for believers but for unbelievers like unbelieving israel while well, prophecy is a sign not for unbelievers but for believers a sign is an indicator of something tongues were a sign particularly for unbelieving israel that a new era had dawned what era the dawn of the evangelism of the nations. Tongues are a sign of God's judgment on unbelieving Israel and his turning over of his revelation to the Gentiles. On the other hand, prophecy is a sign, it's an indicator to poor believers that, that God has given us his revelation, he's, he's made himself known to us. And now look with me at verses 23 to 25. Paul writes there, If therefore the whole church comes together and all speak in tongues and outsiders or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're out of your minds? (laughs) But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Uh, Tongue speaking in church would cause unbelievers to walk in, walk out and go, Wow, those people are nuts. Those people are crazy. I have no idea what was going on there, but those people are like loony. But on the flip side, when God's truth is intelligibly communicated, whether that be in prayer, whether that be through the songs that we sing, whether that be through preaching or just in conversation with one another, it puts the unbeliever in a position to become convicted of his sin. And to put his faith in Jesus Christ, he could hear And be saved because truth and praise are being intelligibly communicated. A few weeks back, I had coffee with a man who told me about visiting his church for the first time. I think he said it would have been 30 years ago. And he sat way in the back. I've never been to this church. I think kind of in the back corner of the auditorium. And I don't know that he was particularly excited to be there. He had just ended up there somehow, some way by the spirit of God. And he was relating this story to me, and he said that it was like the preacher was preaching directly to me. As if he knew everything about me. Was the preacher doing that? Did he? No. <laughs> but that man sitting there, because intelligible worship was happening came under great conviction of his sin and he put his, his faith and trust in Jesus Christ he repented of his sin and he put his trust in the work in Jesus Christ and his work when God's truth is communicated in a way that's intelligible there's saving power a power that is far greater than what would appear to be the, the apparent power of tongues wow God is really at work here what great power God says, you know where power is at? It's it's when my truth is just simply, clearly spoken. When I'm praised, there is power. Intelligible worship builds up the body. It helps God's people and it helps those who aren't believers become God's people. Uh, This week, we've considered that intelligible worship builds up the body. And next week, we'll turn to the second thing, and that is that orderly worship builds up the body. The big picture, God wants you to strive to excel in building up the church. And for that to happen, you must insist on and value intelligibility in worship. Would you bow your heads with me at this time as we conclude?